Hey, everybody, welcome to episode number 66 of the John Riley Project. It's Tuesday, August 6, 2019. We are broadcasting as we always do from the city and the country, Poway, California, 92064. Welcome to the John Riley Project. You know, this is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if you're watching this on YouTube, Thank you very much. Uh, but did, did you know that we have all of our podcast episodes available in audio only form on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms? And hey, if you are already one of our loyal audio only listeners, thank you very much. And did you know we have the video version on YouTube. So I uh, just want to make sure you're all aware of all the different platforms. We've got this podcast going on and I'm having fun with this. It's my, my sort of my passion project. Uh, just enjoy sharing my thoughts, talking about national issues, local issues. Today, we're going to kind of be covering a lot of ground. I, I want to cover a little more um, reaction on the national scope from the terrible mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton. Um, there's been a, num a number of news items I think we can we can get into. I want to talk a little bit about uh, some sports issues here locally with sports radio, with uh, the Padres, and then there's some local issues, some things going on in our county politics as well as in our local city politics here in the city of Poway. So Got a number of things I'm going to cover in this podcast episode. Um, what's going on with me? Like, actually, the big news in my family is my son is um, he's wrapping up his summer here in San Diego and he's heading back to Albuquerque tomorrow with one of his teammates. Um, so, you know, we're going from empty nesters to having both uh, our, our adult children living with us for the summer. Now one of them's leaving. So we're kind of getting back to sort of half empty nester. So a little bit of transition here in the Riley household. We'll be moving the podcast studio back into our original location very shortly. That's, I guess, maybe the good news. The bad news is I'll be missing my son. But, you know, he's about to start his sophomore year in college. So it's going to be great for him. Uh, but, you know, speaking of, you know, the podcast studio, we've got some great uh, new episodes uh, planned with some great guests. We're going to be talking about um, some you know, community issues as it relates to our religion um, and various religions here in our community that are working cooperatively. We got some great guests from the interfaith group here in Poway. We'll be meeting with them um, in an in a interview format here later this week. Um, also have some great guests coming up where we're going to be talking about um, you know, just kind of local sports with some uh, big time uh, sports social media guys. And then we have a local author here in uh, Rancho Bernardo that's got a new book and we'll be interviewing him. So got some great interview podcasts coming up. And, and frankly, I, you know, as much as I enjoy doing these solo podcasts where I just kind of get up on my soapbox and share my thoughts, I really like the interview format best. And I'm hoping that you like that as well, because you know, we get different people in here, different perspectives. I, I like to learn. I'm curious. And we've got a lot of really amazing people in this community. So it's just it's a it's a great format. It it makes it more of a community forum. So I'm looking forward to doing a lot more of the interviews. Um but anyways, let's um let's talk a little bit more. You know, the the wounds are still fresh from the two terrible mass shootings that we experienced over the weekend. And I gave a podcast uh, or I, I recorded a podcast on Sunday night and posted that. And I got a lot of feedback from some of the, uh, the loyal listeners, loyal viewers of the John Riley Project. And thank you for all of, the, of you that have responded. And we've been continuing the conversation in Facebook, uh, both in my John Riley Project Facebook uh, page, but also in the special closed group, the John Riley Project Insiders group, which you're all invited to. It's on Facebook. Um, and we have some more intimate conversations there and just a lot of really great reaction, sharing ideas, sharing thoughts. And we don't all agree. We all tend to see the world a little differently. And um, I think the dialogue is good. A dialogue is healthy. So anyways, um, what has happened recently, and I, I think this was yesterday when President Trump and Vice President Pence um, were at the White House and, and they 
they had a you know a message to America, and it was something. It was really interesting. Um, you know, of course, when the president of the United States is there to address a major tragedy in the United States, everyone's paying attention, right? And, you know, as you'd expect, Vice President Pence is sort of right by his side, but two steps to the back, very similar to what Joe Biden was like with President Obama. So I know I always kind of like the the formality of that. I just, I think it's kind of cool. Um, but at any rate, uh, President Trump got up there and, and you know, it is, I have mixed emotions. I mean, if you've seen the recording, um, it's you know, only about six, seven minutes long. It's very interesting. Um, on one hand, I mean, I got to give credit where credit's due. I mean, I was happy to see the president stand up in front of the cameras and talk through this issue and and condemn um, the the violence, condemn the bigotry, the racism, um, condemn um, the white supremacy. That was important to hear from the president of the United States. And, you know, President Trump gets a lot of heat on that. And I've been one of the guys that has been applying heat because a lot of his rhetoric, in my opinion, inspires some of that. So it was good to hear him address it. So I give him credit for standing before the cameras and, and I guess really working to try to console the nation. Um, you know, I think some people probably thought it fell a little bit short, but I was happy he at least did something. But I'll tell you what, when he was up there in front of the camera, the whole thing just it was uncomfortable. I mean, obviously, we're 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 still kind of getting over the shock and horror and everything else related to the shootings. But still, with President Trump up there, you know, it was very scripted. You can tell that the the um, that his words were carefully chosen. I'm sure he has got some you know, very good speech writers and you could tell there was a little bit of freelancing on it, but for the most part, it was a very carefully worded script. It almost kind of felt like, um, I don't know. It just, it felt a little bit out of character. Um, cause Trump usually is a freewheeling guy. And here he was really kind of kept in a specific lane. Um, I, I got a sense that, I wonder what was going on behind closed doors as they were preparing for this. Was this something that Trump really wanted to embrace to come before the nation and work to heal the nation? Was this something that maybe he was reluctant to do, but his staffers were urging him to do it? Yeah, I'm sure there's a little bit of, you know, it'd be, it'd be fun to be a fly on the wall when they're having those conversations as they were preparing for it. But um, like I said, I, I thought that it was good for him to get in front of the camera, but you know, some of the things that were said were just, you know, there's good and bad to it. And it was good for him to condemn the El Paso shooter and specifically his manifesto, because, you know, the manifesto was all about, you know, white nationalism and preventing the invasion of Mexicans into the United States. And Trump was outright condemning it. OK, so that's good. But all of this all of the, the the content of that manifesto, if you read it, is largely inspired by the same rhetoric that Trump shares in his rallies and in his tweets. So I'm thinking this is like a contradiction when I'm hearing this. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know Trump calls for a combination of racism, bigotry and white supremacy. And I'm thinking, OK, again, great message. Now, President Trump, I'm asking, walk the walk. Um, don't just talk the talk. So I would hope that we're going to see a little bit of a dialing back of his rhetoric in public forums because, you know, his campaign rallies when he's out on the road gets a huge group of people in front of these arenas, a lot of enthusiasm, a, a lot of um, shooting from the hip, as it were. And so I'm interested to see if we see an adjustment in the language and rhetoric that comes from our president, because I think that's important. I talked about that. Um, but then also in his condemnation of the El Paso shooter, he said, we need to be acting as one people. Um, we have open wounds and these cannot heal if we're divided. OK, again, great message. Um, we need to heal wounds. We can't be dividing. We, we have to come together. But Trump's own rhetoric is what divides us. In fact, you know, I was talking on Facebook with, um, you know, some of some of the followers of our of our podcast. And, you know, Trump isn't the only one that does this. I mean, President Obama did it and President Trump did it. And I mean, Republican, Democrat, that's what politicians do. They 
use wedge, they're called wedge issues, right? They use wedge issues to divide and conquer. And it's a strategy for them to win elections. And it's sad to say, but it works. It's effective, but in many ways, it's really, really troubling. Um, So I see a lot of that rhetoric, you know, from President Trump, and I've talked about that before, you know, the whole build a wall, send her back, knock the hell out of them. I'll pay for your legal fees. Uh, We need to block Muslims from entering the country until we can figure out what the hell is going on. I mean, that's the kind of divisive rhetoric from Trump, but we hear it on the right as well. You know, a lot of the language, you look at the Democratic presidential uh, debates, you hear a lot about the 99% versus the 1%, the corporations versus the people. Um, you, You see a lot of, again, divisive rhetoric um, from the left as well as from the right, because it works. Um, But then in these moments, you know, they urge us to come together. So again, it's just like, you know, your mind can bounce around. If if you don't have firm convictions for yourself, firm principles, firm morals and values for yourself, you know, and I I think I do for a a great degree. I'm certainly not perfect on that. Um, But there are people that don't have firm convictions and they kind of just sway with the wind. They go with the flow um, and they drift. There's a lot of people in America that do that. And when you see this rhetoric, you know, on one side, they're dividing on the other side. They want us to come together. It's, you know, it's no wonder there's a certain amount of chaos in society because leadership matters. Leadership's important, um, not only from the president, but from the presidential candidates and political leaders and community leaders all around our country. So, um, you know, is is Trump going to change his tune when he's out on the trail? You know, because he's starting his own campaign uh, process now. I I'm skeptical. I, I hope he does. I'm not sure if he will, because uh, in many cases, this is too irresistible for him. And at the same time, it works. It's an effective campaign strategy. So we'll see. But he came forward with a number of recommendations. And one of the big ones is to reform our mental health laws. And for the most part, I think most of America agrees, you know, that there are some mental health issues. And, you know, people condemned President Reagan back in the 80s for cutting funding for the medical, um, for mental health. And that's why we saw a great increase in homelessness. That, that again, that's an interesting topic that we can explore. But I guess the point I'm making is that addressing mental health has been a political football that has been bouncing around for decades in America. And people have always commented on that as the driving force for a lot of these shooters, that they're sick. And yeah, <laughs> they are sick. Um you know, I, I commented on that, you know, in my previous podcast, where a lot of cases, I think it's a bad philosophy. You know, a lot of these shooters are nihilists. They they've given up on life. They have no value for their own life or the lives of others. In some cases, they just don't give a crap, you know, and they just go out and want to go out in a blaze of glory. Um, so, yeah, mental illness is a concern. And President Trump talked about getting those people treatment. So like, OK, that's good. Um, and then when necessary, involuntary confinement. And I'm thinking, hmm, OK, here we go. Um, I get that. But you got to be very careful. You know, if people are getting locked up. You know, because some people call them mentally ill. Um, That gets tricky, you know, because if no crime has been committed, um, those people still have rights. So it's an interesting topic. Uh, But I think it does make sense that from a societal perspective, we need to focus more on this. Um, You know, I've talked a lot about this through some of my self-improvement podcasts. Life, life can suck sometimes. Life is difficult. Um, There's a lot of tragedy and heartache and things that we go through in life, in our relationships, in our careers, in our own health, um, it can be a bitch. And so, you know, we have to have coping skills and we have to be able to get through that. And, you know, I've talked about believing in yourself and journaling and a lot of these things. There's a lot of techniques I think that people can use to kind of get through their own personal crises. But some people, they don't have those skills. They don't have those resources. And then, they react in an explosive fashion like what we've seen. So I'll give them, I think that's a reasonable thing for us to do is to address mental health. But I, I'm just very curious of what kind of policies are being put forward. Um, you know, President Trump talked about shining a light on the dark recesses of the Internet. 
And that's that's a fair point because they talked about 8chan, which is a, a website that attracts a lot of, you know, fringe elements. Um, but there are a lot of other, I mean, you go on the internet and you want to talk about hatred of any particular target group, you'll find a place for it and a community that will just completely immerse you, whether you want to hate people on the basis of religion or race or whatever it is. There's a lot of stuff out there on the internet that is concerning, but Trump says we need to shine a light on the dark recesses. And if we're just going to shine a light and expose them, hey, I'm with you. That sounds like a good thing. But President Trump campaigned in 2015 on shutting down parts of the internet that had speech that he didn't like. Um, as far as I know, he hasn't done that yet. But when I see this again, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious. Uh, I'm concerned about what, what's the political policy implementation. Do they want to, do they want to control or monitor the behavior of people that potentially could harm uh, others, they should, um, as long as they protect their rights. Um, and I, I think we have to be very careful that we don't suppress the free speech rights of people that are completely innocent, even if they do have goofy thoughts. And, and speaking of which, that gets to the red flag laws. And I'm just learning about this, uh, but I, my understanding of the red flag laws is that, you know, if someone identifies another and says that other person potentially dangerous. He's talked about killing people. He's got weapons. You know, this is the whole idea of catching them before they commit the crime. From a logical perspective, I get it. You know, people want to, you know, they always say we need, if certainly if you see signs, speak up, right? That's important. I understand that. Um, but at the same time, we have to be careful again, that we aren't violating people's rights because, the whole notion of red flag laws is that let's just say you, you have a crazy neighbor down the street and they're make they're they're saying threatening things making you feel uncomfortable and you could call the cops and say those people are unstable they have weapons and then the cops come banging on their door and then take their guns now some people in America think that's the right thing to do and i understand that logic but on the other hand you know we are guaranteed due process. It's in the Bill of Rights. So you can't just take away someone's right because someone else thinks that they might be um, a criminal. Um, there is a process for that. So um, that concerns me. I, I, I want to be careful on how that's handled. This, again, is part of the conflict um, with some of these laws where, where people are so quick to try to find ways to create greater safety that they end up giving away their civil liberties in the process. And really the, our own civil liberties, our bill of rights, our individual rights are the moral foundation of America. Now that assumes that people are acting rationally, that people are, um, you know, that people act in good faith. And then we obviously have a lot of bad actors and that has to be managed. But I'm, I always struggle with this. It, it, to me, it's not a slam. For some people, this is a slam dunk. Yeah. You see a crazy person, they got a gun, go in there, take their guns and, um, you know, keep them from doing anything. But I always try to find that right balance with our rights and, and how is that handled? And I don't know the answer yet, but the whole concept of basically going after people for crimes that have not yet been committed there's a Tom Cruise movie about that. Have you ever seen Minority Report? It's really interesting, but this is like a futuristic, um, you know, science fiction movie where they were able to um, predict people that were going to commit crimes in the future. Um, and, and it was some artificial intelligence system looking at your existing behaviors, and they were able to forecast that on a certain date in the future, you were going to you know, shoot people, harm people, whatever. And then Tom Cruise, if I recall from the movie, he was one of the police officers and he would have to um, capture or, you know, secure that person before the crime occurred. Um, and you know, we talk a lot about how, you know, some of these dystopian novels like 1984, how real they are in many ways today. And now we are seeing, you know, if these red flag laws are enacted, it's a little bit like that minority report movie by Tom Cruise. Um, so 
you know, um, it's also interesting, you know, when they say there's someone that potentially might commit a crime with guns and then they send the, the, the police in to take away their guns. That's always been the paranoia of a lot of the uh, right wing gun owners is that the government's going to come and take your guns. Um, and now, yeah, I mean, they're talking about it. In fact, actually, Jerry Brown did that in the state of California, um, where people that had guns that weren't allowed to have them, he sent in police to take them away. Um, so it's a lot of this, again, the, the Bill of Rights, you know, whether you agree or disagree with the Second Amendment, I think we can all agree that the Second Amendment is largely a justification for why people that have guns maintain them, that believe in their right to it. And you may question if the Second Amendment gives them the right to own a gun, if it's only really for a militia. And that, that's been debatable for over 100 years. Um, but I've always, I'm of the belief that if they're going to start creating these laws to take away guns, then what they need to do really is they need to amend the Constitution. Um, so again, I, I'm trying to find that right balance between doing what's right, doing what's safe, protecting lives, but also protecting civil liberties in the process. Because sometimes what our government does, and they did it with the Patriot Act, in the, in the spirit of protecting the American people, they outright violated people's Fourth Amendment rights, you know, because the government was in there um, spying on people's emails and, and phone calls. And, you know, the Fourth Amendment is a protection of privacy rights. It prevents the government from search and seizure unless they have probable cause and a warrant. So, um, yeah, so I, I'm just kind of troubled by this. Um, I, I haven't come to a conclusion on what's right, nor have I really heard any proposal that properly balances the two. Um, so I'm curious to see how this goes. And of course, President Trump is calling for the death penalty for mass shooters. And he recently, you know, asked um, uh, Attorney General uh, Barr to begin restarting the death penalty process. So this is kind of right in the wheelhouse of um, what a lot of conservatives want. Um, it's kind of red meat, but I'm I'm not a believer of the death penalty. I don't think it's really a deterrent. Um, I think our government needs to secure our rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The death penalty violates <laughs> that right. Um, the government needs to definitely, you know, prosecute and incarcerate criminals. Um, the death penalty to me just, it, it doesn't, it's not effective. It's, it's proven to be more expensive. Um, and, Sometimes mistakes are made, you know, with DNA evidence coming forward, you know, it's the, you don't want to condemn a person to death that might actually be innocent. So that's being called for. Um, President Trump was also calling for working with social media companies to identify mass shooters. That's an interesting one as well, because um, we've been seeing a lot of controversy now with social media companies suppressing uh, people's message. Uh, typically and, and often politically, you know, more often suppressing right wing messaging um, and to a far greater degree than uh, suppressing left wing messaging. Um, and people have always been fearful of, you know, violations of free speech rights. Um, but really, if a private company is um, if a private company is blocking speech well, that's not a First Amendment violation, right? Because it, 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 it's a private company and they can police and moderate their, the content on their forum, just like a newspaper isn't required to publish every letter to the editor. Um, you know, Twitter or Facebook isn't obligated to publish every content, every post. But, but when the, if the government is now going to cooperate with Twitter and with Facebook and all these other social media platforms... Then we kind of get into a point where if speech is suppressed, is that the government suppressing the speech? Um, and then again, that's we get into First Amendment territory as well. So, um, you know, in, in President Trump's remarks, you know, he only spoke for less than 10 minutes, pretty much just offered some headlines. But I, you know, they always say the devil's in the detail. I'm curious to see what they do. You know, are, are these things really going to happen? And if they happen, are they going to do it in a way that still protects our, the Bill of Rights, our First Amendment and, um, and all of our other civil liberties? 
Um, and then, of course, you know, there's the comment about video games, and this is the one that's often mocked because, I mean, really, video games are being used by people all around the world. I mean, especially, you know, I, I've, I've been to Japan and, and the Japanese culture is a huge um, user of video games, um, but we don't see a lot of the shootings there. So does the video game culture incite violence? It's a debatable thing, but I think on the whole list of potential reasons for these mass shootings, that one's got to be a pretty low priority. Uh, But of course, President Trump brought it forward. But there were a lot of people that were upset because he didn't really propose any new laws to um, uh, enact more gun control. And so in my last podcast, I really try to stay away from the topic of gun control because it's just exhaustively <laughs> debated on um, in the media. And, and we all know the left wing talking points and the right wing talking points. Um, but it is interesting to see, are we at a tipping point? That's what I'm wondering. For the longest time, um, people have been demanding gun control measures be put in place, like, you know, the background checks and, um, you know, you know, even the fingerprint technology. So only certain people could use the weapon. And there's a whole list of things that have been proposed. Um, but yet we still keep seeing these mass shootings over and over again. And a lot of it, you know, people have said, oh, the NRA is controlling the politicians and and they're that they're blocking the ability for these laws to pass every time there's another mass shooting especially if they're horrific mass shootings. I always wonder, have we finally crossed that line that minds will change? I'm not sure, but I've been feeling more outrage from this last weekend than I have in previous events. And granted, we had one here just in Poway, you know, four months ago at the Poway Chabad, there was a mass shooting. One person tragically lost their life, four injured. Um, But something feels a little bit different with this El Paso and Dayton shooting. I'm wondering if we're near a tipping point. I wonder if Republicans are going to um, begin to, I guess, if we're going to see a little bit of erosion of that firm NRA vote. I'm curious to see if that's going to happen. Um, but there there was a... Um, a comical moment near the end. And I guess, I don't know if president Trump was freelancing at this point, or he just misread the teleprompter, but he said, may God bless the memories to those who perished in Toledo. (laughs) I think Toledo, you know, it was in Dayton, Ohio, not Toledo. And then immediately you look on Facebook and there's pictures of, um, of Klinger from mash (laughs) dressed in drag and saying, you know, uh, we're reporting safe here in Toledo. Um, that was some of the memes were fantastic. And then I'm thinking of the Toledo mud hens and cause I'm a baseball guy and it's just crazy. So, I mean, I don't know how in the hell that one slipped in, you know, may God bless the memories to those who perished in Toledo. So this is an evolving process. So we had the tragedies over the weekend, all the talking heads, all the presidential candidates have been making remarks. Now, President Trump has finally come forward and made some remarks. Now we're going to see a continue cascading of, um, amount of conversation and reaction and counter reaction. Is this a case where we are all in a kerfuffle and a week later we're on to the next thing in the news cycle? <laughs> I don't know. It's something feels a little different this time. We'll see. I think we've all kind of felt that before. We always thought, well, surely now something must happen. Will something happen now? I don't know. I'm not sure. So um, very interesting. And then, you know, on, on a similar note, on August 4th, now today's August 6th, it's Tuesday. So on Sunday, August 4th, uh, you know, famed astrological physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson came out with a tweet that was really amazing. And And this is a little bit of what I talked about in my last podcast. He said in his tweet, in the past 48 hours, the United States of America horrifically lost 34 people to mass shootings, which is true. On average, across any 48 hours, we also lose 500 to medical errors, 300 to flu, 250 to suicide, 200 to car accidents, 40 to homicide with a handgun. Often our emotions respond more to spectacle 
than to data. Oh, this this set off a firestorm. He did this tweet. He got over 80,000 responses to that message on Twitter. And just he was getting ripped by the people on the left and getting huge cheers from the people on the right. It was amazing. And, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson is a scientist um, and he, you know, obviously he's very outspoken on political issues when it comes to science. So climate change, for example, he doesn't pull any punches. Um, But it was interesting for him to share this. And this is kind of what I said in my last podcast with the news media. If it leads, I'm sorry, if it bleeds, it leads. So the, the spectacle of these terrible events was 24 seven news coverage. And yeah, we lost. In fact, at the, uh, on Sunday night, it was 29. I heard today it was 31. Uh, Tyson said it was 34, but maybe there was another mass shooting where there were two or three that were killed. I'm not sure um, how he came up with the 34 number, but I had made a comment in my previous podcast that we're constantly losing lives of people in, in gang violence with handguns, often as a result of the war on drugs. And, um, and Tyson essentially cites that. He said 40 people uh, killed with homicide via handgun. So this is an interesting issue is when we see these terrible mass shootings, obviously it generates huge reaction in people, as it should. But then you wonder, are people caught up in the hysteria because they're reacting to it are or are people legitimately very are they more against guns because we see a lot of the backlash from this or are they really concerned about senseless death because if you're really concerned about senseless death then look at the list you know we've got 500 people lost to medical errors 200 in car accidents, 250 to suicide every 48 hours, 40 lost to murders by handguns. Um, I think if we're really concerned with the loss of life, we have to be concerned with all of this and not just get into these uh, periodic cases of hysteria when we have these awful mass shootings, because there's a lot more going on. That's the concern with the news media is that you see this being repeated over and over and you think this is the reality all across the United States. But it's not. These are these are cases that are real. They really do exist. But I think we just have to have a sense of proportion. And um, I'm not sure if we do. Um, So when we lose that sense of proportion, we get, you know, I mean, we're dealing with facts here, but we're also dealing with a certain level of. um, Yeah, hysteria to it. Um, So it was interesting to hear his his comment on this. I think it's important. I think it's real data. And it was interesting. He was just getting hammered typically by people that are big fans of him when he speaks out on climate change. So pretty interesting. Okay, so enough of that. Um, The the mass shootings, that's a heavy topic. And um, I want to switch gears here. Have a little bit of fun. I want to talk about the uh, the San Diego Padres. And I'm a big baseball fan, and you know the Padres are off last night. They got a game against the Mariners today, playing for the Vetter Cup. Uh, if you're a if you're a Padre fan, you know about that. If you're a Mariners fan, maybe you know about that. Of course, the lead singer of the rock band Pearl Jam is Eddie Vetter. Um, he went to high school in Encinitas, and then after high school, he moved up to Seattle, started the band Pearl Jam, and some creative guys got together and said, "Hey, when the Padres play the Mariners." Let's create our own, you know, trophy and we'll call it the Vetter Cup after Eddie Vetter, which I think is awesome. I think it's a great piece of creativity. Um, And so the two game series is starting tonight and I'm hoping the Padres can get back on their feet, man. They that Sunday game against the Dodgers, man, that was just brutal. Um, But you see a lot of a lot of, you know, if you're ever on Padre Twitter and that's just a really fun community, uh, passionate fans that really love the team but passionate fans that are darn impatient with the losing. Um, Cause I mean, heck our, our uh, the Padres have only made the playoffs five times and we're now celebrating our 50th anniversary, <laughs> um, which is just, it's the San Diego sports curse that I talk about all the time. Um, I'm of the belief that we've got a system in place. We got good ownership for a change. I like what AJ Preller is doing and he gets some criticism as a general manager. 
I like what he's doing. He's taking calculated risks. Not every deal he's made has been a, a winner, but he's won some spectacular deals in getting Fernando Tatis Jr., getting uh, Chris Paddock, and a lot of the other trades he's made have worked really well. Um, some have not worked well, but overall, I like what he's doing. He's amassing young talent, which is something that our our uh, our program has never really done to a great degree. You can see a future that's promising that the talent in the single a and double a level is really extraordinary. Um, Andy green was hired in 2015. Um, actually no, it was 20, the beginning of the 2016 season, 2015 was when they signed Kemp or they traded for Kemp traded for Upton traded for Kimbrell traded for Norris. And that was the, I remember that was over the holidays. Um, in 2014, I think it was. And I was just blown away by all those signings. And I was like on cloud nine, the 2015 season ended up being a disappointment. Bud Black was fired, I think in June, um, because the team really wasn't doing much. Pat Murphy was put in as the manager in the second half of the year, and he was a placeholder. And then they hired Andy Green. That's right. So he, Andy Green started the 2016 season. And by that time they had traded away all of that high profile talent. They were amassing a lot of talent that was very young, like 17 year old talent that was down in the very low levels of the minor leagues. Andy Green is criticized often for his, um, for his overall managerial record. But those first couple of years he had, the cupboard was bare. He didn't have much to work with. This year is different. This year he has talent. You know, the signing of Machado, um, the arrival of Tatis and Paddock, um, a second year for Hosmer. Now we've got something. And yes, some players are not performing well. Is that the result of Green? Some people have said that he's lost the clubhouse. I tend to like Andy Green. I think he is, he's a guy who's a good communicator. Um, I think I can, I mean, I'm going to make an assumption here. I think a lot of the moves that he makes that are highly questionable are made not necessarily with the intent to win today. Um, sometimes he'll leave some of his young pitchers in, in challenging situations just to give them the opportunity to grow and to work through things, um, knowing that they may flame out. And we saw that with, um, uh, what's the, the tall, uh, uh, long-haired uh, righty was named Wingeter. Yeah, so we saw that with him in um, one of the games against the Dodgers, and he came in in a critical situation. Uh, you know, gave up a big hit, and we lost the game. Um, we saw a little bit of that as well, bringing in some young talent in those crucial innings um, against the Dodgers, and errors were made, mistakes were made. Um, with Luis Urias at second base. So some of the, the calls were questionable. Francisco Mejia was struggling to have synchronicity with Kirby Yates. Mistakes were made there, and that game was lost. That was the one that crushed me on Sunday afternoon. But sometimes I think he's putting those players in those positions just so they can get that experience of being on on the stage in front of like, you know, a, a Los Angeles Dodgers, Dodger Stadium, uh um you know, in, in front of that kind of an audience and see if they can perform. And sometimes things don't work out that well, but I do sense, I mean, you kind of read between the lines when he gives his press conferences, there is a little bit of a sense of defeatism there. You know, you kind of wonder, again, I was saying before, I wonder what it's like in those closed door sessions with Trump and his staff before he came up with the, uh, the announcement he made. I wonder what it's really like in the clubhouse. I wonder if Andy green still has great influence with his team, or if he's lost the clubhouse. I don't know. I tend to want to be optimistic. I want to, um, I believe that the continuity factor is really, really important. We've seen with certain organizations that have had continuity at the general management, well, at the ownership level, number one, then at the general management level, and then at the coaching level, when there is that consistency, we see a incremental build and momentum every year. It gets stronger and better because every time new leadership is brought in, either at the ownership, GM, or managerial level, we have disruption, we have churn, we have chaos, we have starting over again. 
And the Padres have done that for 50 years and at various levels. And even when we have Bruce Bochy as a manager for how long was he here? About uh, 14 years, you know, God bless Bruce Bochy, you know, Poway proud Bruce Bochy. Um, while he was here, he was also uh, dealing with all kinds. And, you know, granted, Kevin Towers was the GM and we love Kevin, you know, rest in peace. But the, the ownership was all over the place when um, Bochi, Bochi was here and the ownership, I mean, the, 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 it's a soap opera in itself. He wasn't given the resources to win. So now we finally have, you know, by San Diego standards, good ownership. Um, I think we've got a good general manager. So I'm hoping we can stay the course and work things through and just not have to hire another manager and start over. But there are people on Padre Twitter that want Andy Green's ass kicked out on the street. And it's amazing. So um, they got off to a rough start to start the second half. I mean, at the, at the all-star break, the Padres are 500. They were, you know, how, how long has it been since the Padres have been 500? Probably since 2010. Um, there was hope and there was even talk, Hey, maybe we can get into this wild card race. Um, but because the second half has been so brutal, um, Padres now, I think are eight games under 500. So they've got some work to do. Um, AJ Preller has said in some of his interviews that he expects the team to compete, to play better and compete for a wild card this year. So I'm curious. I think if the team continues on this down skid for the rest of the season, it might be curtains for Andy Green. Um, but I'm hopeful they're going to turn it around. So um, also in the sports world, I want to talk about um, about the Darren Smith show. They just uh, started up again. Um, you know, Darren Smith, Marty Caswell, Jordan Carruth, they were the midday slot on the Mighty 1090. And I did a podcast about the Mighty 1090, which, by the way, has been one of the most viewed and most downloaded podcasts of any of the ones I've done. Um, and I walked down memory lane with Hacksaw and Jim Rome and, and the whole thing. And I, I'm just a big lover of sports talk radio, especially here locally. Well, when the Mighty 1090 shut down, I think it was in April, it was, you know, the open question, where is everyone going to go? Well, Darren Smith, I think he's a first class guy, runs a great program. He had been doing some fill in work for Rich Eisen um, at the national level. And we were wondering what he was going to do because he knew he was going to do something. And sure enough, he decided to sign with 1360. So he's staying local, which is great. Marty Caswell, we all love her. And that's her, his producer and essentially a co-host. She's going to stick around. So I'm really happy for them. Um, they're going to be, you know, on extra 1360. They're part, that station itself is kind of a weaker signal, but they're part of the iHeartRadio group. And they've got a really great app then you know countless number of radio stations so i think they're hoping they're going to have an audience beyond san diego um and i think there's a great possibilities for them so I, i'm i'm loving it I, I think they're doing great things jordan caruth on the other hand their producer um or actually more of the i guess i guess i guess i would say a producer um he had been a part of that show for almost the entire time but he has been doing a lot of play-by-play -play work at San Diego State University, doing play-by-play -play for baseball, volleyball, a lot of other sports. And he's decided that he's going to really go for it and pursue that as his career. And I think, man, Jordan Carruth, big applause to you. Um, setting your sights on being a play-by-play -play guy, that's a tough assignment. Um, you've got to work your butt off, probably take a lot of low-paying gigs work your way up through the minor leagues, just like a lot of the players do. Um, it's a tough road, but boy, it could be so rewarding. Um, you know, for me as a child, I always had that fantasy of being a play-by-play -play guy for baseball because I've always loved the sport of baseball. Never was that good of a player, um, but just loved it. And so I always thought that was my my dream is to be a play-by-play -play guy. And just this year, um, I decided to live out my dream. And thanks to the good people at Poway High School, um, I've been able to do play-by-play -play for some Poway High games. And we've been broadcasting that on Facebook Live. And it was 
awesome. What a great experience. So last year was sort of the experimental year. So this coming year, I'm going to do it a lot more. I'm going to try to do as many games as I possibly can because I enjoyed it. I think the the parents enjoyed it uh, that weren't able to attend the game because they were at work. I think um, the 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 distant family enjoyed it. You know, if you got an aunt or an uncle in Illinois, you know, you can see your kid play and listen to the game. So, um, you know, as I, as I was doing that, I was kind of, again, living this childhood fantasy of being a play by play guy. You, know, you think about it, you know, God, if I could have if I could do it all over again, would I still be in the career that I'm in? And, you know, you love to say no regrets, right? But, you know, we all, you know, we talked about with Pete Neal, we talk about inflection points. You know, there are certain times in our life that we make critical decisions and it sends us on this path or that path. And then your life is completely different. You know, if I had to do it all over again, I think I would do what Jordan Carruth is doing. He is taking a risk. He's betting on himself. He's pursuing his dream and he wants to be a play-by-play guy and darn it, he's going to give everything he's got to do it because you know what, man, YOLO, you only live once. So go for it. And so I think it's fantastic what Jordan Carruth is doing. I wish him nothing but success. I'm going to be cheering him on the whole, whole way. Um, So congratulations to Darren Smith, Marty Caswell and Jordan Carruth. Um, they're on their feet again and uh, on to great things. So good for them. Um, okay. I, I talked a little bit about uh, what I'm doing on social media. You know, I have the Facebook page, John Riley Project. I post all the episodes there. Um, I invite conversation. I also have the closed group, the John Riley Project Insiders Group. You can join me there at any time. Um, and there I have bonus content where I'll put videos up. I'm you know, working with my, uh, my partner, Zeke, uh, Zeke is my, uh, audio video production, uh, you know, really my right hand man. He, and helping me with this podcast, you know, we're trying to come up with more content, put some more stuff out. A lot of it'll be there in the insiders group. Um, so, you know, join us there. Um, I think we can have some great, uh, conversation. It's a closed group. So you got to search for it on Facebook. It's the John Riley project insiders group. You got to answer a couple of questions. Um, and they're really benign questions. And then, uh, I approve everyone. So please do join us there. You can also follow me on Twitter at John Riley Poway or on Instagram also at John Riley Poway. Um, all right. So I want to talk about some local news. You know, I'm here in Poway and um, we got some comments here about some politics in the local, in our community, but also some things going on at the county level. And of course, we got to start off with our mayor, Steve Voss. Uh, Mayor Voss has been the mayor of Poway since 2014. Um, He is America's only Grammy winning, award winning mayor. Grammy award winning mayor. Um, so I got to give him credit for that. That's pretty awesome. Um, but you, you, if you know Steve Voss, if you've seen Steve Voss, you can't miss him. He's one of the very rare political officials that always wears a cowboy hat. Um, he understands marketing and promotion. He understands branding. Um, you know, you probably, uh, um, you know, it, it got a lot of that from you know his career. You know, he's been working in the promotion business for a long time. It's a smart way to go. I think it's great. And he gets a lot of crap from some people because some people think it's disrespectful to wear the cowboy hat. But man, Voss, keep wearing it because um, I think it, it sets you apart um, and it gets it attracts attention to you. So I think that's good. But anyways, um, Mayor Voss is running for county supervisor and. It's interesting. He ran for mayor in 2014, fulfilled his full term, ran for reelection in 2018, um, and that was in November. So less than a year ago, he won reelection. And then, um, you know, a number of months ago, he announced his candidacy for county supervisor. And that election is going to be in November of 2020. I'm, I don't think there's going to be any primaries for that. I think it's a, a nonpartisan race. But what's interesting is, is that it's he's in, I think it's District 2, and that's mostly East County, you know, a lot of El Cajon, Alpine, but also Poway. Um, that's one of, I think, five uh, supervisor districts in the county. But what's incredible is already there's been one and a half million dollars raised 
in these supervisor races, not just in the Voss campaign, but for all of the county supervisor seats that are up for reelection. Um, so it's incredible the amount of money that is flowing through the system. And I've often commented, you know, some people get upset about it. They're like, we need to get money out of politics. And yeah, you know, when people are spending money, you know, they're trying to buy influence. Of course, people expect quid pro quo. Um, I've talked a lot about that with our school board. You know, the the teachers union endorses candidates. Um, in turn, those candidates, if they, they will a teacher's union endorsement is usually very helpful. Um, and so if the candidate wins, then they turn around quid pro quo and scratch the teachers back and return the favor. And they do that in the form of raises and greater benefits packages, et cetera. So, and we all know that. I mean, we know that money in politics isn't just for the hell of it. I mean, people expect something in return, even micro donations that go to Bernie Sanders, where people are spending five bucks a month or whatever little amount it is, those people are hoping he's going to be elected so they can get something in return, so they can uh, be rewarded with all the policies that Bernie Sanders talks about. So um, when I hear this topic come up about we need to get money out of politics, I often look at it completely the opposite. I think we need to get politics out of money. Uh, and what I mean by that is the the government right now has tremendous central planning power. They can, um, they can tilt playing fields. They can block certain companies or ban certain industries or products. They can overly regulate certain areas of the economy. They can under-regulate sections of the economy. They can grant no big contract awards. There is a tremendous amount of central planning power that the government has that really effectively showcases that we don't have a free market. We have a highly regulated uh, marketplace that really gives special favors to special interests, largely from a lot of these, the money that comes in. And so I've always been of the opinion, it would be great if we had a government that was so limited in scope, had such minimal power over the economy that there would be no incentive to try to influence those politicians in the first place. And that's what I mean by rather than getting money out of politics, we need to get the politics out of money because I think that's a more appropriate pro uh, process. I mean, again, I talk about I'm a big free market guy, and I think the less central planning power the government has, the more the market is free and the more that we can trade voluntarily without coercion of a third party. And I think that's a good thing, but still there's money in politics. And so when, when the, what happened is, is just recently, a lot of the, the financial figures came out on the supervisor race. And it was mentioned that through campaign disclosure statements between January 1st and June 30th this, of this year, Steve Voss generated $232,197. It's a lot of money, you know, especially coming from a mayoral candidate that was limited to $100 donations uh, for election here in Poway. He could raise a heck of a lot more money per person. Um, his main competition is Joel Anderson. And Joel Anderson is a former um, state senator. Um, I think he was also an assemblyman. He's a El Cajon guy, but he's also a really deep red, you know, um, conservative Republican. And um, he has raised $93,775, uh, um, which may not sound like as much. It's, I mean, Voss has raised over three times, excuse me, almost three times as much as Anderson. But the other amazing thing is, is that um, Diane Jacob, who is the sitting supervisor in that seat, she's retiring. She has a half a million bucks in her campaign war chest that she hadn't spent yet. And she's going to be spending all of that money to help Steve Voss win the supervisor race. So I think Mayor Voss has a very good chance of winning because of all that money um, that's going to be coming his way. And because of the fact that he's going to be endorsed by Diane Jacob, who is is generally well liked because she's been reelected many times over. And at the same time, um, you know, Joel Anderson tried to run against Diane Jacob in 2016 and he lost 
well, he saw the writing on the wall and he backed out of that election. So I think Voss is going to have a huge advantage here. But, um, you know, here in our in our Facebook group here in Poway, you know, Chris Cruz runs a group called South and North Poway Votes, which is a wonderful Facebook group. And she, you know, generates a lot of discussion, showcases a lot of interesting conversation about Poway topics. And she showcased uh, Mayor Voss's um you know, donation and expenditures report that he has to file as a matter of public record for the first half of 2019. And she just threw out the question, do you recognize any names of the donors? And I figured I'm going to look around and you can open up the document and you can literally see the name of every person, their profession, who they work for and how much money they gave and their, their address and city, state and zip code are listed, although the physical address is blocked out, but you can see where they're, where they're from. And it was interesting going through that list. There were a lot of donors to Mayor Voss that were in the real estate business and in the construction building development business. But again, that's no surprise, right? Because we're seeing a lot of those developers that are involved here in the city of Poway. They've been, you know, working on this uh, Poway road specific plan. They're going to be building over a thousand units of, uh, you know, apartments and condos in a mixed use, you know, residential commercial um, hybrid. And that's going to be starting up here really soon. So those relationships have already been established. Meanwhile, Diane Jacob had a lot of those, well, little voices here from the other side of the house. Anyways, Diane Jacob had a lot of those relationships in the building industry, and she's channeling all of those to Mayor Voss. So um, not surprising to see them on the list. Lots of donors on that list making multiple $850 payments, which I thought was interesting. I'm assuming that's a max payment for that reporting period. So, you know, 850 times two, 1700 bucks, lots of individuals spending $1,700. And so we saw a lot of those people on that list. So that's a hell of a lot more than the $100 max that was here when he ran for mayor. Um, I went through the list. I recognized the number of names on the list. I saw three people that are on the Poway City Council, um, two people that are on the school board, the Poway Unified School Board. No surprise at all, really, that there are three people on the city council. I mean, there are, the city council is very aligned with Mayor Voss. But the, to then we saw the two on the school board, and really those two people are, um, you know, I, I, you, if you know the school board, you, it's pretty easy to figure out who they are, but I'm not going to name the names. Um, I saw other people on the list that are very active in leadership within the Poway Chamber of Commerce, and then a number of really loyal supporters of Voss who have been with them since day one. So it was an interesting list, and we saw a lot of people in Poway, but people really all over the county supporting him, not just in his district in East County, but really, literally people all, all over the county that were supporting him. So, um, yeah, he's, he's doing well. Um, so we'll see how all of this sorts out. Um, it's still very early, uh, but it's a little bit of political drama. And of course, if mayor Voss is elected, then that creates a shakeup on the local city council. Who's going to be running for mayor? Um, you know, will someone be appointed? Is there going to be a special election? So a lot of drama, a lot of intrigue, but that's still kind of down the road. We're not going to see any of that until after the November 2020 election. And that's assuming that Voss wins. Um, but also in San Diego County politics, Carl DeMaio um, was seeing his name back in the news. He is jumping into the race uh, for Congress um, in Duncan Hunter's district. And that's also, again, that East County area, El Cajon, Spring Valley, Alpine, um, that was the seat that was occupied by Duncan Hunter Sr. for so long with such huge support. His son has taken over that slot, you know, obviously won the election largely on his name, I'm sure. Duncan Hunter's gotten into a lot of trouble with his campaign donations, using them illegally, and he's going through a lot of legal challenges right now. So, you know, the hyenas are out. Everyone can smell blood. And so people are jumping into this race. And so we've already seen El Cajon Mayor Bill Wells in the race, Temecula Mayor Matt Ron, former Escondido Mayor Sam Abed, um, former U.S. Navy SEAL Larry Wilski have all joined the race as Republicans. Um, and now Carl DeMaio jumping in as a Republican. And it's amazing because a lot of these people don't even live in that district. I mean, Carl DeMaio, I think, lives in Rancho Bernardo. Last I checked, um, you know, Sam Abed, who was the longtime mayor of Escondido, I assume he's still in Escondido. Um, 
But then Larry Wilski, I met Larry Wilski. Um, I was a candidate in 2014 for Poway Unified uh, School District on the school board. And I remember I was at the county registrar of voters. We were filing our paperwork and Larry Wilski was right there. He's a good guy. He's a hardcore um, military guy, hardcore, you know, America first guy. Um, so some cases were aligned politically and other cases, not so much. Um, but he's a genuinely a good guy. Um, so I, I enjoyed my, my very brief meeting with Larry there. And then of course, you know, there's the democratic candidate, Amar Kampa Najjar, and he came really close to winning in the 2018 race and he really hasn't stopped campaigning. Um, so he, I think has a good chance to win. And, you know, he, he caught a lot of, you know, racist crap thrown his way, um, when he ran. Um, but you know, I'm not exactly sure what his nationality is, but I do know that in the El Cajon area, there is a very large Chaldean community. Um, a lot of people that have immigrated here from the middle East, um, I'm sure that they're going to be supportive of uh, Camp Najjar. So I'm very curious to see how this all shakes out. Will Republicans stick with Duncan Hunter Jr. in spite of all the challenges, or will they switch gears, endorse another Republican, maybe even someone that doesn't even live in their district, or will they switch gears and, um, and vote for a Democrat? And I think that's going to be fascinating to watch as well. Um, a couple more just quick comments. Um, I encountered today, I was driving in Poway on, Pow- on Pomerado Road near Ted Williams Parkway. And there was, I think, a DUI traffic stop right there in the middle of the day. I mean, it was like at one o'clock in the afternoon. And I was driving up and I saw they had the tents out and the, the police officer was in the middle of the street and he was pointing at cars, directing them. And he told me to slow down. And then he pointed his finger and I thought he was telling me to pull over. And I'm thinking, what the hell is going on here? And it turned out he was not pointing at me. He was pointing at the car behind me. And the car behind me was like an older car and a really faded paint job. And they pulled that guy over. You know, my car is only like four months old. So maybe they thought I wasn't a risk. I don't know. How do they make these decisions? And then you know, it's just like, again, we're talking about civil liberties. You know, it's like a search and seizure when they don't really have a warrant for your arrest. There's no probable cause. So these sort of checkpoints to me always kind of rub me the wrong way. I was thankful I wasn't pulled over. I might've said something (laughs) out of hand and gotten myself in trouble, but it was interesting to see something like that at one o'clock in the afternoon, because that's something you normally see on like a Friday or a Saturday night at you know, 11 o'clock or midnight. Um, so it was interesting. Um, one last piece of news here in Poway. And, you know, this came out uh, in the news last week and we've had for the longest time, one of the last surviving members of the Pearl Harbor attacks. And his name is Ray Chavez. And he passed away last year. Um, Ray, I think lived well past the age of a hundred, maybe 103, I think. Um, and it was always kind of special that, when his birthday came up or, or whenever it was, you know, December 7th, when the Pearl Harbor um, attack was um, memorialized, you know, Ray Chavez was always mentioned, Poway was mentioned, and it was neat that he lived in our town. And then when he passed away, you know, big news item, you know, nationally as well as locally, as you would expect. Well, now um, Mayor Voss, again, talking about Mayor Steve Voss, and then our Congressman Scott Peters, they got together. And now they're talking about naming the Poway post office after Ray Chavez. Um, and it's, it, it's interesting. And first of all, you know, Peters is confident this is going to pass. I think he's submitting it for legislation to the house of representatives. He expects it to be voted on, I think in September or October. And of course it'll just be rubber stamped and it'll be approved and we'll have a new name for our post office in Poway. So cool. Um, and he's a good guy, Ray Chavez, but the, the other angle, and I want to say this with the fullest respect to Mr. Chavez and his family. I don't mean this in a disrespectful manner at all, but for the longest time, Congress has often been condemned for doing nothing. <laughs> but one of the things they could do was name post offices. And it was funny because it always seemed to be post offices far away. Well, now it's a post office in my city. Um, it's just interesting how that kind of turns around. Um, so at any rate, uh, I'm pleased. I think naming a post office is a good thing. I don't have a, I don't have a problem with it. 
I think there are a lot more important things for Congress to do than name post offices. But I think it's terrific that we're going to commemorate Ray Chavez, the last um, well, he just passed away, but until then he was the last living survivor from the Pearl Harbor attack. So, wow. Um, and speaking of branches, talking about post office branches, Cliff Branch passed away. You remember Cliff Branch? He was the wide receiver for the Oakland Raiders in the 1970s and eighties. That was right around the time that I really started following football. 1975, they went to the the Super Bowl, the Raiders. They beat the Vikings. And I remember that was the first year that I really got into football. And the Raiders, man, it was, that was just a great team. Ken Stabler, um, Fred Bolitnikoff, Dave Casper, Mark Van Egan. Um, who were some of the guys on defense? Um, who was the guy, the assassin? Um, I can't remember his name. He, uh, he was the one that actually paralyzed a player for the new new england patriots it was really sad um but there were a lot of great players lyle alzado played on the raiders then although he was a little bit later on but just so many characters so many personalities on that team and that's when i really started following football because back then the early 1970s the 49ers were not very good Uh, excuse me they were very good in the early 70s but they always lost to the cowboys in the playoffs and i was you know six seven years old i wasn't really paying attention but then in the mid seventies, I was around 10 or 11 and, you know, football began to make sense to me. And so the Raiders were the team. And back then that's when the 49ers were awful. That's when they traded away their whole team for, and all their draft picks for Jim Plunkett and OJ Simpson, oh, OJ Simpson. Um, and the 49ers never really came back to glory until 1982, um, that's when, well, the 81, 82 season was when they won their first Super Bowl. So in the mid to late seventies, I followed the Raiders pretty closely. And I remember Cliff Branch and he was a heck of a player, uh, made some big catches. He was fast. He had great hands. He was a big, big part of that Oakland Raider team. And Cliff Branch just passed away. So rest in peace to Cliff Branch. Okay. So I want to give my final closing quote as I always do. And, um, we had a person, uh, was in the news and she passed away and she's a Nobel laureate and her name is Toni Morrison. And I really didn't know much about her. And I've been, you know, reading articles about her. She's a fascinating woman, a pioneer, a reigning giant of modern literature, whose imaginative power in the books, beloved and Sula, um, transformed American letters by dramatizing. And I love this by dramatizing the pursuit of happiness within the boundaries of race. And she just died at the age of 88. And so I need to learn more about her. Um, but when I saw so many people remarking on her passing, I was thinking, why don't I know about this person? I, I must've lost touch, but I searched for one of her quotes and this is a great one. And, and I, you know, I talk about some of this stuff in my self-improvement episodes, but this is beautiful. And she says, if you want to fly, you got to give up the shit that weighs you down. <laughs> And I think, oh, it's fantastic. That's a great quote from um, Nobel laureate Toni Morrison just passed away at the age of 88. So, boy, another rest in peace. Ray Chavez, Cliff Branch and Toni Morrison, three giants in their own way. May all three of them rest in peace. So this is the John Riley Project. It is Tuesday, August 6th. 2019. This is episode number 66. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching and have a great day. We'll be back at you. Bye-bye.